Thank you for watching NTD Business Top Stories tonight. Investor Warren Buffett's company dumping most of its stock in top chip maker TSMC. What do they buy instead? Ford halting production of its flagship electric pickup truck. What's the reason? The White House announcing progress on its national EV charging network, making a deal with Tesla to expand access. American consumers keep spending. Retail sales saw the biggest gain in nearly two years in January. What are people buying? And the U.S. could be getting rare earth minerals from countries that use child labor. What is being done to prevent this? We speak to a lawmaker who's taken action. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway slashed its stake in the Taiwanese chip giant TSMC in the last months of 2022. Last month, TSMC said revenue in the first quarter is likely to drop 5% as it weathers a global downturn in the chip industry. According to a regulatory filing, Berkshire cut its position in TSMC by just over 86% in the fourth quarter. It comes just three months after Berkshire unveiled it had purchased more than $4 billion worth of TSMC stock. Now, such a turnaround is rare for Berkshire, but not unprecedented. Meanwhile, Apple was among Berkshire's few additions, which Buffett views more as a consumer products company. Berkshire bought another 20.8 million shares of the firm worth over $3 billion. Shares in Apple have surged 24% since the start of the year. TSMC stock is down 5% today. Apple is up over 1%. Tech billionaire Elon Musk is warning about AI, calling it one of the biggest risks to the future of civilization. Here's what he said today at the World Government Summit in Dubai. On on a more sort of near-term time frame, I think artificial intelligence is something we need to be um, quite concerned about and really be uh, attentive to the safety of of AI. It's both positive and negative. It has great, great promise, great capability, but it also with that comes great danger. Musk co-founded OpenAI, the firm that developed ChatGPT. You can ask the chatbot questions and it gives you human-like answers. Musk said ChatGPT has shown people just how advanced AI has become. And he thinks we need to regulate AI like we regulate cars, planes, and medicine. Musk said regulation could slow AI down a bit, but he thinks that could be a good thing. Big Tech wasn't invited to the table Tuesday, but it was the center of attention at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. The topic, kids' safety and privacy online. And the call won for action. Here's the story. Please raise your right hand. Do you swear the Senate Judiciary Committee spent about two and a half hours Tuesday in a rare unified hearing. This cause is truly bipartisan. All of them are bipartisan. It's an issue that keeps parents and children up at night. A psychologist testified the average teen spends more than eight hours a day online. That's more than three times the hearing length. The last time Congress passed a law to protect children online was 25 years ago. On Monday, a CDC survey found increasing mental health challenges among teens. 42% of high school students reported experiencing persistent sadness and hopelessness in 2021. Researchers say social media contributes. Kristen Bride testified that her son Carson didn't get a phone until eighth grade, no social media until ninth. Yet she says precautions did not stop his suicide. Carson had received nearly 100 negative, harassing, 
sexually explicit and humiliating messages, including 40 in just one day. She said she could not successfully sue the social media sites because of something called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It provides legal immunity to websites that moderate user-generated content. Lawmakers are considering limits. Other ideas include creating a digital regulatory commission or setting age limits. Senators promised change and hinted that big tech will be invited to future hearings. If you or someone you know needs help, call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It launched last summer and has already routed more than 2 million calls, texts, and chat messages to call centers. Do you think kids should need their parents' okay to get new social media accounts? Actually, Ohio's governor wants it to make it a law. The plan would impact a broad range of social media companies like TikTok, Snapchat, Facebook, and YouTube. For kids under 16, the companies would need to get a parent's permission for their children to sign up. The state's lieutenant governor is driving the initiative. He says social media companies produce a product that is intentionally addictive to children, and parents should know about it before it happens. Meanwhile, Ford is pausing production of its top-selling electric F-150 Lightning trucks due to possible battery problems. Tuesday, Ford said the battery-related issue was discovered during pre-delivery inspections. The company did not provide details about the potential battery problem. But Ford says the production stop does not affect trucks already on the market. The company has sold 18,000 Lightning pickups since the spring of 2022. No word on when production will resume. The Biden administration on Wednesday issued long-awaited final rules on its national electric vehicle charger network. Soon, more of the public could charge EVs using Tesla's extensive charging infrastructure. NTD Sean Marshall has more. Electric car giant Tesla will, for the first time, make some of its charging stations available to all U.S. electric vehicles by the end of 2024. The Biden administration announced on Wednesday it's part of the White House's $7.5 billion federal program to electrify the nation's highways. This would force Tesla to give up its huge advantage of allowing only Tesla vehicles to use its EV charging infrastructure. The plan will make at least 7,500 chargers from Tesla's supercharger and destination charger network available to non-Tesla EVs, possibly late but good timing for non-Tesla EV drivers. In 2022, a J.D. Power survey of 11,500 EV drivers found that 20% of the time, when EV owners attempted to charge their cars in public, they found the nearest charger broken. The survey also found that 21% of charging attempts ended in failure due to software problems, vandalized chargers, and payment processing errors. New standards from the Department of Transportation attempt to fix these problems and others. Other new standards for EV charging stations include stations will have a 97% uptime reliability requirement, all EVs will be able to use them, stations will be easy to find, chargers will use a single method of identification for all users, and the technology will work well into the future without needing updates. Other companies installing thousands of EV chargers across the U.S. include Hertz, BP, GM, Mercedes, and others. Sean Marshall, NTD News. On the topic of electric vehicles, ever wondered where these materials for EV batteries come from? EV batteries are made from critical minerals or rare earth minerals. Often, these minerals are sourced from countries that employ forced labor 
in the process of mining these minerals. We talked to Congressman Pete Stauber about this. He's on the House Committee on Natural Resources. Such a pleasure having you, Congressman. Now, I understand you're, you're the chairman of the Subcommittee on Energy and Mineral Resources, and that's what I would like to talk to you about. But first, would you mind explaining very briefly, what is the focus of this committee? Well, right now, obviously, Energy and Minerals Resources Subcommittee, we have jurisdiction over both on and offshore oil and gas drilling and the mining and critical minerals uh, in the United States, uh, the oversight of that. And really, the primary focus is going to be on permitting reform. Reform, right. And you introduced re uh, recently, last month, uh, the bill permitting for Mining Needs Act. What prompted this? Well, you know, we're seeing the, the, the fact that uh, uh, permits take, uh, you know, years and years. One permit in the state of Minnesota, for example, they're in their 20th year of permitting for mining of critical minerals. The other mine is in its 10th year. And so we know that uh, mining, uh, the permitting reform needs to happen. We're hearing that from the industry experts, the, the, the union leaders. We need to be able to uh, uh, mine in the United States. And, and I'll give you an example. And just in the same watershed that President Biden banned mining in Minnesota, in the same watershed in the country of Canada, they opened up a gold mine and, and are mining gold within three years, same watershed. So we can do that here in the United States. And my Permit for Mining Needs Act will just do that. And on Biden's banning of uh, mining in parts of Minnesota, the administration cited issues uh, such as the environment and uh, indigenous communities. Can you explain your view a little bit more? Yeah, first off, uh, this administration never went through an environmental impact statement, which is the highest scrutiny the government can get, give any uh, project. They never allowed an environmental assess, uh, environmental impact statement rather to go forward for political reasons. They didn't follow the truth, they didn't follow the facts, and they didn't follow the science. They followed the political winds of the anti-jobs, anti-mining groups. What you're referring to is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, which was established in the late 70s. The boundary, there is never going to be mining in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness, and there will never be mining in the unique buffer zone around it. But outside those zones, do not take our livelihood away, which is timber harvesting and mining, and that's exactly what this administration is doing, reference mining. This administration, for purely political reasons, banned mining in northeastern Minnesota, the biggest copper nickel find in the world. They did not allow the process to move forward. And I wonder, what are businesses telling you, Congressman? Oh, the, I, t I can tell you the mining ban that Joe Biden put on in northern Minnesota, we are furious. Uh, beyond furious for what uh, he did. Uh, we say mining is our way of life. Mineral royalties uh, from our mining goes to our schools. Every school district in the state of Minnesota is positively affected by mining. And uh, this administration uh, has been devastating uh, in their decision to ban mining in northeastern Minnesota. On this topic of critical minerals, it's not just about getting it because we can get it as of now one way or another. It's about getting it without human rights violations. Isn't that right? We talk about responsibly sourcing these minerals. And I've, I've sent letters to Joe Biden in this administration. The United States of America should not buy one ounce of critical minerals mined by child slave labor. They turn a blind eye to it. Uh, in order to meet their green demands in our country. This administration and this president signed memorandums of understanding with the Congo to mine uh, critical minerals that we use in the United States every day. Keep in mind, 
that the Congo uh, employs 40 to 50,000 children and they mine the cobalt, for example, with child slave labor. And it's wrong for the United States to enter into a memorandum of understanding with adversarial nations uh, that employ child slave labor. And Congressman, this leads to an important question. Does the U.S. have the resources? Absolutely. We have to have the political will to mine these uh, critical minerals. And again, not only uh, in the United States and on Minnesota's Iron Range, which has the biggest, uh, as I said, copper nickel deposit in the world, 95% of our nickel, 88% of our cobalt, and over a third of our copper and other platinum group elements, we have right here in Minnesota. In other states, we have uh, critical minerals that, that, that need to be mined. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Congressman Pete Stauber. Pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. On Wall Street, stocks ended higher. The Dow rose 39 points or 0.1 percent. S&P added 11 points or 0.3 percent. And Nasdaq gained 110 points or 0.9 percent. President Biden has tapped Federal Reserve Vice Chair Leo Brainard as his top economic advisor. She will leave her post from the Fed and serve as the new head of the National Economic Council, or NEC. Brainard worked in both Obama and Clinton White Houses. She joined the Fed as a governor in 2014. In announcing the news, the White House says she's, quote, a trusted veteran across our economic institutions. So with Brainard leaving, who will take her place as Fed vice chair? The Wall Street Journal reports it could be the president of the Chicago Fed, Austin Goolsby. But the journal cited unnamed sources. Goolsby was a top economic advisor to President Obama. We'll have more analysis on what this change means for the Fed in just a moment. U.S. retail sales surged 3% in January, the U.S. Census Bureau said today. This was the biggest gain in nearly two years, beating estimates by a wide margin. Resilient consumer spending is a positive sign for the health of the economy for sure, but could make the Fed's job harder. The turnaround could have been helped by the strong labor market and post-holiday discounts, as well as favorable weather. Taking the lead as food services and drinking places, it surged 7.2%. Sales at auto dealers uh, accelerated 5.9%. Furniture stores sales jumped 4.4%. Bank of America said that while lower income consumers are pressured, they still have solid cash buffers. These latest numbers could suggest that the consumer is still in a good spot. Joining me is Sam Burns, founder of Mill Street Research. Now, Sam, retail sales above expectations. What, what do you think contributed to that? Seasonal factors? What do you think? That's right. I think there are definitely some seasonal factors at work. Um, in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, this kind of thing where we had a, an unusually weak December reading and then an unusually strong January reading. Uh, I think COVID has thrown off a lot of the seasonal tendencies that we normally would see. And so I think that's showing up in the data. I think the, if you look at the last few months, uh, retail sales have generally been pretty firm, you know, slowing a bit probably overall. Uh, but I think the, uh, the overall picture is one of a pretty good consumer who has income to spend and they're spending it. So it tells us that the consumer is still in a good spot. That's right. That's right. I mean, after you adjust for some of the ups and downs month to month, uh, there's still a pretty good level of overall uh, spending, uh, certainly after, before you account for inflation, at least. And I think that's uh, reflective of the relatively strong job market um, that uh, where both people are getting new jobs and people are getting raises in their wages. And that's flowing through to the retail sales numbers like we've seen today. And what are your thoughts on the Fed's effort to uh, to fight inflation? It seems like 
the Fed is not really able to hold back uh, demand. Uh, credit card debt uh, is at record highs as well. What are your thoughts on the Fed's efforts? Yes, well, unfortunately, people put a lot of faith in the Fed to do these things, but their toolbox is actually somewhat limited um, to changes in interest rates and their balance sheet, which have only um, you know indirect effects on a lot of spending and, uh, and consumer demand. And of course, a lot of the problems that have been causing the inflation in the last two, three years have really been uh, on the supply side uh, due to you know COVID and, and, the, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, things like that. So those are things that the, the Fed has really little control over and, uh, and, and can't do much about in terms of boosting supply. They can only try to limit demand. And even there, they can mostly only do it for um, parts of the economy that are interest sensitive, like housing and autos and things like that, where people borrow money. Um, Whereas the fiscal side of the support that we saw the last couple of years, where people had gotten stimulus checks and unemployment benefits and things like that, I think that has had a residual effect that's still ongoing and that that's been helping to offset some of what the Fed has been doing with interest rates. So I think there's been a kind of a back and forth between what the Fed has been doing and what a fiscal policy has been doing. I think that's the reason why you have not seen the slowdown that people were expecting so far this year. SM, quickly, one last thing. What are your thoughts on Brainerd leaving the Fed? What does it mean? Yeah, there's been a lot of people talking about uh, that she was one of the more dovish members of the Fed um, and the vice chair, and that she's leaving to go to uh, work at the White House. And so the question then is, uh, you know, who will replace her? Uh, I've seen news today that potentially Austin Goolsby um, from Chicago is going to potentially take the spot. And then what will that mean for you know, monetary policy this year? Uh, will it mean you know, more hawkish uh, you know, Fed votes? I think the overall net effect will probably be relatively minor. Uh, you know, Fed Chair Powell still has a very large impact on the, uh, on the FOMC and the Federal Reserve's actions. I don't think uh, Brainerd's departure is going to big, make a big difference, uh, but it does show um, you know, what um, you know, the Biden administration is looking for in terms of economic uh, support and uh, and think we'll, we'll shift things around a little bit in terms of the uh, FOMC composition. All right, thank you very much for your insight today, Sam. Pleasure having you on. My pleasure, thank you. Taking a break, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, Elon Musk says creating a single world government could lead to the end of human civilization. This was in the middle of a Q&A session with the World Government Summit. We have that story after the break. Welcome back. At the World Government Summit, Elon Musk said that having a single world government could lead to the end of the entire human civilization. The World Government Summit, by the way, is an annual meeting where heads of state and leaders from various fields gather to discuss governance and business. Musk wasn't asked about this specifically, but he brought it up himself. Civilizations have risen and fallen, but it hasn't meant the doom of humanity as a whole because there have been, there've been all these separate civilizations that were separated by great distances. And so, um, you know, say like, while Rome was falling, it, uh, it, you know, uh, Islam was rising. We want to be a little bit cautious about uh, being too much of a world, of a single uh, civilization, because if we are too much of a single civilization, 
then if, if, we're, if the, whole, the whole thing may collapse. Musk said different world governments need to be wary of cooperating too much because if something goes wrong with one part of civilization, the whole thing could collapse. This is almost the opposite of what the founder of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, wanted. He urged people to enhance cooperation between governments. We have to re-globalize this world. We have to make sure that we strengthen cooperation because as it was mentioned, we are faced with issues which are of existential importance for humankind. Our common future is at stake. The World Economic Forum, by the way, is a co-founder of the World Government Summit. The World Economic Forum is a group of important people from around the world who meet to discuss global problems. They include presidents, prime ministers, and people from companies like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and J.P. Morgan. The group focuses on climate change and environmental, social, and governance issues. It doesn't officially say it likes any specific economic system, but it does say it wants a more equitable world. Some believe it's promoting global socialism. Elon Musk has participated in the forum's events in the past. He's also previously criticized it for being an unelected world government. In regards to Elon Musk's criticism today about a single world government potentially leading to mankind's doom, we spoke with economist Pete Earle. Having numerous separate political authorities acts as a sort of hedge against major errors. It also acts as a hedge against tyranny. And so when there's numerous states of various sizes, uh, there's a form of arbitrage where individuals can choose over time where to live on the basis of the policies they like or um, the standard of living they want and that sort of thing. But Earl argues that there could be an element of self-interest here. Musk isn't saying this purely because he thinks he's right. Someone like Elon Musk um, is more directly impacted by the cooperation of major states than the rest of us. There have been recent international agreements to impose a global minimum tax on the wealthy and large firms. That's something that 98% of us will never be subject to. So I don't, I don't begrudge him in any way um, using that forum to address issues that are uh, really only relevant to him and a few other hundred people in the world. And we spoke to economist and historian Brian Dimitrovic from the Laffer Center. Dimitrovic believes the current system of many different governments is better because diversity of tax regimes has always been positive for world economic growth. There's this tax competition. I mean, if one tax environment is unfriendly, you can go to another one that is friendly. And that really has been an engine of uh, the Industrial Revolution. I mean, you look at the development of the United States, say all the, you know, the labor and capital flow movements had you know, so much to do with different sovereignty situations. And uh, yeah, the, the result was the greatest increase in material flourishing in history. And we spoke with Jeff Webb, the publisher of news organization The Post Millennial. Webb argues a single world government would make people poorer. Historically, when you've got one government, the tendency of all bureaucracies is to um, have their views streamlined and amalgamated. And so you don't end up with this diversity of thought and input. More government usually ends up, usually ends up meaning less freedom for the people in the long run. Less freedom, fewer liberties, usually ends up meaning a lower lifestyle. This year's World Government Summit ended today. It began Monday, February the 13th. And that's all the stories today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Monk. Follow me on Twitter if you're there. 
And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you tomorrow.